summarize chapter three quickly. Um, that's what I have in my notes. So I'm going to do that, just kind of tie it up this morning. Um, we're into, into this third chapter of Daniel, and Daniel is not actually a part of this narrative. It's kind of interesting. He's absent. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are front and center. And Nebuchadnezzar, he was given a dream by God in Daniel chapter 2 that freaked him out. And, uh, and it, this dream showed this statue that had different parts made of different metal. And the head was Babylon and was King Nebuchadnezzar and was made out of gold. And so for some reason, he decided in chapter three, apparently he has a short memory here, short-term memory loss or something. He decides, I'm going to build a, a massive 90-foot tall statue out of gold. It's going to, and I'm going to call all of the rulers of the provinces. I'm going to call all of the people that we have conquered, including the Babylonians and citizens, and I'm going to bring everybody out here to this kind of wilderness area, and I'm going to set up a worship service, basically, and, and make all of them bow down to this statue. We don't know if it was Nebuchadnezzar, the statue was actually of him, or if it was of one of the Babylonian gods. We're not sure. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, but essentially, what he was trying to do was, uh, was, was um, pressure the people into submission, and further assimilate them into Babylonian culture. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Hebrews, uh, they refused to, to do it, and they stood up against him, and they confronted him with boldness, but with respect, and they said, hey, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to trust in him, and we're not going to bow down. And so he has them thrown into this furnace that doesn't kill them. They're delivered out of it. There's a fourth person walking around in there. The text doesn't tell us exactly who that was. But what we find at the end of Daniel chapter 3 is that it is God who has delivered them powerfully. And Nebuchadnezzar is another step along in his pride being humbled. And we're going to read about a real humbling that comes upon Nebuchadnezzar next week in chapter 4. Now, uh, just going back to the last couple of weeks and the setup of Daniel, why is, why is Daniel, why is this book, this 2,600-year-old book, why is it in our Bibles? It helps us see, this ancient literature helps us see in our year 23 that every kingdom of this world will pass away. Every single kingdom comes and goes, but there is a kingdom that has begun, that is among us now, and, and, and that will continue to expand and never be conquered. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ inaugurated when he was born in Nazareth. Jesus is this case study for us on the faithfulness of God to a people who have been exiled a people who have been ripped out of their homeland and carted off 550 miles in the Middle East to modern-day Iraq. Uh, they've been uprooted from their true home. They've been uprooted. Their families have been, some of them, killed and scattered. Their way of life is completely decimated. And these people are, many of them, faithful Hebrews. They're wanting to hold on to their heritage. And so they're waiting on God. They're longing for restoration. And they're waiting on God to bring them this restoration. Now, 
when great pressure comes upon you to assimilate into a culture, you can imagine that some of these Hebrews are bowing to the gods of this new culture, Babylon, in order to survive. You can, you can put yourself in their place and go, man, like the will to live is strong and we've got to do this to secure our family and to keep people together and to make sure we don't die. We can understand how some would bow to these gods as a way of surviving. Other Hebrews are continuing to stay faithful to their God. This God, Yahweh, claims to never leave. He claims to never forsake his people. And everybody's faith is being tested here. It's a pressure cooker like we probably cannot imagine. And it's really, really hard to stay faithful to God in such a rapid current. Yet as this current sweeps against these Hebrews with all of its might to wash them downstream into full conformity into Babylonian culture, these Hebrews, many of them, they maintain their footing and they stand firm. And so Daniel and these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are their Babylonian names. They've been re-educated and given new names, new identities into the Babylonian culture. Their names were Hebrew, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, I I assume along with those three, a a whole host of Hebrews that Scripture never, ever names continue to resist Babylon's pressures, continue to try to stay faithful with everything they've got to, to God. And they're filled with this courageous wisdom of the Holy Spirit. They're resolved to worship and to follow God no matter the cost even if it costs them their very lives. And so I wonder, as a connection to us in 2023, may we also, as Jesus' called out people, as the church, may we long, and not just long from our heart, but may we choose with our minds and our wills and our volition to be a people of worship, a people of holy resistance who are filled with the courageous wisdom of the Holy Spirit. May we conduct ourselves as men and women and youth who have decided with our wills, who have resolved, who have chosen to follow Jesus no matter the cost, even if we die, even if we lose everything, all of our money, all of our livelihood, our way of life. May we, as Jesus' loyal people, resolve to follow him, to stay close to him. Long-term tradition holds that Daniel was written about 2,600 years ago. This is an ancient text that we're working with in our hands. So I want to encourage you to just like, just be reading it, be let, letting the, the words of scripture, let them be open on your lap as I preach this morning and, and, and measure what I'm saying against what you see in the, in the scriptures. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take one of the black ones on the chair next to you. We'd love for you to just take it home, put your name in it. It's yours now. No strings attached. Um, Daniel is among this group of exiles. The Babylon comes in, besieges Jerusalem for somewhere between 18 and 30 months. Eventually, Jerusalem falls. They conquer it. They kill many of the people. They end up taking the mighty men and the nobles and the officials, the people with a future in front of them who seem like they could serve the Babylonian kingdom. They take about 10,000 of them, 550 miles through the Middle East to, from Jerusalem to Iraq. And uh, 
and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is taking the credit and taking the glory for this conquering of the people of God. Babylon, anytime you see Babylon in the scriptures, Babylon is always representative of an enemy of God. Uh, you'll see Babylon, the actual nation, in the text of Daniel right here. But as you read through the scriptures, you'll see Revelation is a good place where the name, the, the, the title Babylon comes up again and again and again. Babylon is always presented as an enemy of God, an enemy of his ways, representing violent kingdoms, ungodly kingdoms. So chapter one in Daniel, just to catch us up, especially if you're new with us, reveals that his three friends, the Daniel and his three friends, they, re they receive this incredible favor from God. You see it in verse two, verse nine, and verse 17 in chapter one, that God gives them wisdom. God actually gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand as judgment, but he stays with them throughout this exile. And, and God gives them this favor while they're in Babylon to seek Babylon's welfare, which is so surprising. Like you would think about how you would be feeling if somebody invaded this country and then hauled us off overseas to another nation, re-educated us in their ways, gave us a new language, new names, and everything we knew is gone. And yet the heart of Daniel, the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they are serving this kingdom and actually seeking its welfare. Not as sellouts, but as faithful servants of God Most High. They held firm to their only object of worship, Yahweh. They navigated controversy with skill, supernatural skill, because God was with them and God was in them. And they resolve throughout all of this, as confusing as it may be to us, to stay true to God. Chapter 2 reveals how under the threat of death uh, by Babylon's enraged king, Daniel and his friends, they seek the Lord in order to serve the most powerful man in the world and his kingdom. He has this king, Nebuchadnezzar, has this nightmare that freaks him out. He just loses his mind on this. It seems to contain some sort of a, a prophecy about the future of his kingdom. And so he wanted to know what it meant. And so he's looking for people to, to open and to interpret this dream for him. He can find nobody until uh, the Lord gives the meaning of this dream to Daniel. And Daniel comes boldly to the king and shares with him. And, and, and Daniel actually boldly confronts King Nebuchadnezzar with the truth of this dream that Babylon will be destroyed along with three mighty kingdoms that come after it, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks after them, and then eventually the Romans. These kingdoms, these violent kingdoms will be destroyed by a kingdom that is not of human origin. This rock, this stone, this rock of offense um, that's cut with no human hands in his dream comes and destroys this statue. And so it's showing us and telling uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar at this time that the kingdom of God is going to break into the world and it's going to subversively break up the power of these magnificent, and they were, and violent, ungodly kingdoms. And there is one difference, there's many differences between the kingdom of God and these kingdoms, but one difference between them is that the kingdom of God will have no end. These kingdoms have continually just churned. We read in, in chapter 2 in our call to worship this morning, God sets up kings and kingdoms 
and he takes kingdoms down and kings down. And so now we come into chapter 3, which teaches us through the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what it looks like to resist crushing pressure in order to stay faithful to God. In a nutshell, here's the tension of chapter 3. Will the images that God has made bow down to the image that man has made? Will the images that God has made bow down to the image that man has made? This, this really is the question for you and I uh, today. Well, um, so our temptation is probably not to bow down to a statue out on the Rathdrum Prairie and worship it, right? It's probably not a temptation for us. But our temptation is to bow down and is to worship a host of other things in our world, other things other than God, our homes, our families, money, other people, fame, music, power, sex, health, beauty, false gods, ourselves. Our temptation is to worship a host of created things rather than the creator God who is forever praised in the language of Romans chapter 2. The tension of, uh, of Daniel chapter 3 actually has its origins in the very first chapter of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he, God, created him. Mankind, male and female, he created them. Every man, every woman, every child, the world over, for all of history, are created in the image of God. And the, the Hebrew word here for image has statue or replica in view. That's what's in view uh, with this image uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Um, it's also image, these statues and replicas are a common theme in ancient Near Eastern cultures like Babylon. Um, I'm going to quote Trimper Longman, who's quoting another guy, Walter Bruggeman, but this is what he says. As Walter Bruggeman has pointed out, the Hebrew word for image, it's selim, it is also used for the construction of royal images. That is, while the king could not be physically present throughout his entire realm, he would set up images of himself throughout the kingdom to remind the people of his authority. In this sense, the image of God may be taken to mean that human beings are God's representations in the creation. We, as his image bearers, reflect the divine glory in the world. Though the exact force of being created in the image of God may escape us, it clearly highlights the special relationship between God and his creatures. End quote. So in the ancient Near East, kings like Nebuchadnezzar were often considered gods. They were revered as gods. People would bow down to them. They would do whatever they say. They would treat them as gods. And so um, as part of their rule, what these kings would often do is post images or statues of themselves at the far reach throughout their kingdom, uh, in in their royal cities, but also into the far reaches on their borders because they wanted to warn these bordering nations of their authority, and they wanted to warn these neighboring people groups who rules this territory. And so additionally, in in addition to kings being seen as gods, um, images of a nation's god were set up in their temples as well to to remind worshipers who these temples belong to. So think of Buddha, 
Right? You see Buddha in these temples, that, that temple belongs to, in their view, the Buddha. And that's what these nations would do. They'd set up images of these gods in their temples. And so there are, the connection here is that there are important parallels between uh, God and Israel, with God and Israel, because image is actually a mega theme in the Bible. Image is a mega theme. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 and pulls all the way through to Revelation 22. Uh, even Yahweh, creator, would post up statues of himself throughout his temple. And these statues would spread throughout the far reaches of his kingdom. And there's a major difference between Yahweh and neighboring kings and gods like Nebuchadnezzar. What's the difference? That Yahweh's images are actually alive. It's people. The image of God spreading out into the far reaches of his creation to represent him, to show him to show what he is like. So we are created, whether you're uh, uh, in the family of God, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, it has no bearing on the fact that you are created in the image of God after the likeness of God. And he has given you a purpose, whether you understand it or not, and your purpose is to follow him. Your purpose is to represent him. Your purpose is to trust him. Your purpose is to give thanks to him as he provides for you. We are his images, uh, the images of this creator and king. And we are um, created to make his unseen presence visible and his glory visible in the world around us. And he's given us guidelines as his image bearers, those who are created in his likeness. They're boundaries about how we're to conduct ourselves in the world as his image bearers. According to the second of the Ten Commandments, we are forbidden, according to the law, Exodus chapter 20, under threat of death, actually, to make images of Yahweh, to make little statues of God. We are forbidden to do that. Why? Because a statue can never represent him like a human can. A statue cannot, as beautiful as some statues are, right? They can never carry the beauty. They can never carry the depth. They can never carry the complexity. They can never carry the life of a person made in God's likeness. And there's a commandment that comes before the second. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or you shall have no other gods beside me. You shall have no other gods but me. It's consistently repeated throughout the Old Testament, and no doubt, this command, the very first of the Ten Commandments, no other gods, is in the mind of the three as they're pressured out on this plain of Dura to bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. This is why there's so much tension in chapter 3. Will the images that God has made bow down to the image that man has set up, that man has made with his own hands? It's a showdown. It's exactly what's happening here. here here's the first point out of the text here. There is great pressure to bow to something or someone other than God. There's great pressure for us to bow down, for us to, 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 expit, to sacrifice resources, time, attention, affection to many other things other than God. 
There is, we have pressure from authority. We have pressure from our communities. We have pressure from intimidation or threat of physical harm or even death. There's more things. There's more pressures, but these are three that we can identify right out of the text. Pressure from authority. Babylon is this totalitarian state, which means that all of the power of this glory, this is the, the, the superpower of the world at that time, all of the power of Babylon is centralized into the hand of this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. It goes where he wants it to go. It goes how he wants it to go. And a, a quick scan, if you just look at chapter 3 in front of you, just look for the word king. You'll see the, the word king and the name of Nebuchadnezzar just repeated constantly throughout. It's in there between 10 and 15 times. King, 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 king. The reader, the, the author rather, wants us as the reader to see how uh, his authority, his human authority is front and center in this text. That's what the writer is doing here. And, and then not only that, but multiple times you have all of his officials named, right? The governors, the, the counselors, the, the satraps, the prefects, all of these names that seem a little bit funny to us. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he gathers all of the people of his kingdom, all of these powerful officials, but he doesn't just gather the powerful officials out on this remote plain of Dura. He also gathers all of the peoples, the, lang the nations and the languages that he's conquered. There's all kinds of different people. There's more than just Hebrews in his country that they are subjugating. And what he, this is a part of a re-education process. This is, an, this, is, this is another opportunity for, them to, for him to have them violate their consciences and so come further and further and further as loyal citizens of Babylon. It's a dedication ceremony of this massive statue, 90 feet tall, about nine feet wide. Some historians think that part of that 90 feet was actually a huge pedestal. So it wasn't 90 feet by nine feet because that's not a good representation of a human being. Uh, but nonetheless, like it was massive. It was covered in gold. It is a dedication ceremony and it's a worship service. That's what this is. It's a worship service. And the herald proclaimed aloud in verses 3 and 4, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, imagine the racket. Like, I can't imagine coordinating all of that. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar, look at these words, has set up. Men made the image. Men have set up the image. You're to worship an idol made by human hands. The presence of this, this furnace out on this plain of Dura is also a clear indication that this king expected resistance. He expected these people's languages and nations to resist his pressure for them to bow down. And so there are going to be consequences, real hot ones, if you don't comply. Um, I think in our collective memory as a people, the, the, the COVID lockdowns in March, April, May uh, in Idaho of um, 2020 um, have been a pretty in-our-face example of the kind of pressure that we can feel from authority and also um, from our communities, right? Um, this thing starts, this, this weird virus starts coming down the line in January, February. We start hearing about it of 2020. And I, I, would, I would venture to say most everybody in this room was united in the fact that we, it seemed really bad and we weren't really sure. And so we were going to just like 
We were going to accommodate it. We were going to do whatever was necessary, right? But um, as time went on, difference of understanding, different research emerges, and people begin um, dividing into various factions, not just two, but five, 10, 50, I mean, so many. Like, people just start dividing and start resisting some of the pressure that we were feeling from governments and from businesses and, and under the, the threat of uh, fines, of closures, even imprisonment, uh, various governments the world over pressured their citizens to comply. I know firsthand, some of you in this room, you've had convictions about the jab and your employment your retirement, your life's work was hanging in the balance. What are you going to do with this decision? And others of you in this room, I know firsthand, had pressure not to get it. While the answer seems easy for us looking back, it might seem easy. Maybe it still doesn't. But in the moment, these pressures are rarely easy for us to discern. Rarely easy for us to navigate. They can be overwhelming and they can be confusing. And I do want to be clear that getting the jab is not a, a, an equivalent to breaking the first commandment, just so that we're all clear. Not even close. Pressure, we get, we, we get all this weird pressure from authority. And we, do, we don't, like, it's, I mean, COVID's not even close to an equivalent of what was going on on the plain of Dura in this moment. Not even close. We also get pressure from our communities. There are some of you who have employers and coworkers who pressure you. There is great pressure upon you in your, in your workplace to violate your conscience, to bow when your pay or when your place in the company is on the line. Some of you have families who pressure you. You've got parents, you've got grandparents, you've got siblings who pressure you to act contrary to your conscience. Some of you have classmates, right? you've got um, teammates, you've got boyfriends, you've got girlfriends who are pressuring you too to do things that you don't want to do, to be a part of things that you don't want to be a part of. And so being left out, being rejected, being humiliated is a real pressure of your life. Some of you have been abused by pastors and by church leaders as well. Supposedly standing in the place of God, pressuring you to go against his gospel, to go against his ways. And should you resist, it represents for you the potential loss of your community, people that you've been integrated with for years, maybe even your faith. Jesus' own disciples tried to talk him out of the cross. His own people, his own nation, tried to get him to bow down to their pressure and to abort his mission of redemption. Community pressure is real. It makes us do things, oftentimes peer pressure, that we don't necessarily want to do. There's another kind of pressure too. There's pressure from intimidation, this pressure of punishment, this pressure of death. Um, Dale Davies, a commentator, he writes, in the, he, he, this is a bit of history, in the late 1930s, in the heyday of Joseph Stalin adulation in the Soviet Union, Stalin's name is mentioned in a provincial meeting. It's just mentioned. He's not there. He's not present. His name is mentioned. And what happened was it triggered a standing ovation 
among the people in this meeting, which also ushered in a standing dilemma. Who would be the first one to sit down? And so they just keep clapping. He's not even there. They're just clapping for for Stalin. Finally, an elderly man, unable to stand any longer, took his seat. They noted his name, and they arrested him the next day. He did not worship the idol long enough. There's uh, somebody else named Paul Schneider. He's on the left of the screen in front of you. And there's a, a, a guy, maybe you've seen this picture, on the, this picture on the right. This is in Nazi Germany. Both of these were involved with the Nazis. The guy on the right with the circle around him, his name is August Landmesser, and he's kind of doing this while everybody else is giving the salute uh, to the Nazi flag or to the Fuhrer in this moment. I don't know who was there. This is some sort of a, um, like an industrial company and they're all having to give their allegiance to Nazi Germany. And August Landmesser, in this picture on the right, he had married a Jewish woman and they were pressuring him to uh, be done with her. And eventually uh, he was enlisted. They were split up. She was taken to a concentration camp. He was um, put on the front lines in modern day Yugoslavia and ended up dying. I think in 1942. The guy on the right, on the left, Paul Schneider, he was a Protestant pastor. Um, he stood in line. He was, he was arrested because he was resisting the Nazis. And on April 20th, 1938, that was Hitler's uh, 49th birthday. He was in this Butchenwald uh, concentration camp. They were all brought out to, um, to pay tribute to the Nazi swastika. And they were told to whip off their headgear and then to give the salute. And guards here observed one man who would not bow to the swastika, and it was Paul Schneider. They beat him, 25 lashes with an oxhide whip. If you know anything about oxhide, it's thick. That was, his only, that was only his first oxhide whip treatment because he refused to worship the idol. He ended up dying. He was martyred by lethal injection at Butchenwald a few years later. The pressure from authority, the pressure from community, the pressure from intimidation, you guys, is real. It's real. This is all within the last century in the West. It's real. So there's great pressure to bow to something or someone other than God. There's also um, an opportunity for us to decide who we are worshiping and who we are serving before the pressure even comes. In times of peace, to make the decision. In times of peace, to resolve. Who is it that we are going to serve? Who is it that we are going to worship? The first and second commandments to have no other gods before Yahweh and not to make images and not to bow down to them, they must have been in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's minds here. And and I think that this is why they were able to remain standing when this worship service begins and all of the people fall down to worship this immobile, impotent, man-made statue. Their fellow co-workers, they're mentioned in chapter 3 as the Chaldeans. That represents this whole group of counselors to the king. They accuse these three maliciously to the king. The qualifier malicious here means that they, they wanted to do the three harm. Notice that they accuse the Jews here, the Hebrews here. We hear a lot in our day about anti-Semitism. 
There are a lot of people that are still caught up in the Jews are the problem with the world. Pay attention to that. This goes way, way, way back in the text, 2,600 years. There are more than just human forces that have, um, that have their sights on the people of God, his, his nation, his, his, his heritage, the Jews. There are more than just people who have their eyes on them as targets. There are the forces of darkness and Satan who hates God himself continues to persecute the Jewish people. Does that mean the Jewish people are innocent in everything they do? No more than I am in anything that I do. Pay attention. This qualifier that they maliciously accused them, it it literally means when it's transliterated, it means they ate their pieces. That's weird. It means that they wanted to get their teeth into them. It means they wanted to devour, destroy their flesh, e.g. kill, like, for example, kill them. That's what they were after. And, uh, and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're brought before this, this raging dictator king, and he threatens them unless they bow their knees, they bow to this statue, they are their toast, literally. Notice this threat here. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? That's a taunt, straight up, verse 15. Who's the God who is going to deliver you? I've got all power over you. And their reply to this king is the theological, it's the emotional, it's the functional um, center of chapter 3 here. And so in verses 16 through 18, they say, Shadrach, we read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer, and they say to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't, Be it known to you that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. Uh, A theologian, Dale Davies, he he also mentions, he, he says that in this moment, they're unsure of God's circumstantial will, meaning they're unsure if they're going to get out of this mess alive. They're unsure of what God's will for them in this moment is, but they were very sure of God's revealed will, which is have no other gods before me. That they were sure of. They were willing to give over their bodies in service of God. Brian Chapel writes, Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It is a confidence in a sovereign God. We trust that he knows what we cannot discern, He plans what we cannot anticipate. He secures our eternity in ways beyond our fathoming. Biblical faith calls for each of us to acknowledge God's provision as sufficient, loving, and good, even if it falls short of or contradicts immediate desires that cannot fully, within us, that cannot fully anticipate his plans or fathom his wisdom. Believers whose faith will withstand the trier's the trials of this world must be able to affirm, I may not understand God's provision. I may not expect it or in this life know enough to even like it, but I trust my God whatever comes. This does not mean always knowing what will come, but my faith trusts that what my God knows is best, not what I think is best. What matters most to the three is not deliverance, but it's obedience. It's faithfulness. Notice how many times in chapter 3 the words image and the words worship occur too. 
The writer of Daniel here, likely Daniel, is putting this before the reader. There's this image, 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 worship, worship, worship. The pressure to bow down is actually a matter of their worship, their allegiance. And they're not as concerned with their security as they are with the object of their worship. What about you? What about you? Are you as concerned with your security, with your way of life, with your comforts, with your conveniences, as you are with God himself? What he wants of you, what he wants for you. As they refuse to bow the knee to this king's religious command, the king is furious and he rages. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he was a powerful man, but he's a bit of an eight-year-old. Like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, we just see rage, rage, rage. Like he's a ragey dude. And like, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. I'm going to throw you in a furnace. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that doesn't take a lot of creativity to come up with. And he's just always losing his mind, like consistently. He's furious. He rages. He orders this oven, this furnace heated up seven times hotter. It's maximum capacity here. He has them bound. He has them thrown in. It's so hot that these mighty men who bring them up to it have to push them in. And as they push them in, the, the three in, they themselves are killed by the heat of this fire. Have you ever driven by a car that's on fire on the side of the road? It's wild how hot that is. Nunez, you know. You know how hot a fire is. Derek Miller, if you're in here, you know how hot a fire is. Some firemen. Like, it is, it is wild. Like, when you even get your fit, like, when you drive by a car that's on, that's on fire on the side of the road, the heat comes through your window glass, and you can feel it on the side of your face. It is crazy. It is crazy. He has these guys bound. He has these guys thrown in, and it kills some of his own servants. And what we actually witness here, what the text tells us implicitly, is that God can protect his own servants, and Nebuchadnezzar can't even protect his. As we refuse to bow down to the gods of our culture and the various ideologies demanding our allegiance, right and left, and center, and extreme right, and extreme left, all of them, as we refuse to bow down to these ideologies demanding our allegiance, our culture, like this king, will rage at us. Do not be surprised if we are canceled if we are silenced, if we may even be killed at some point, if we lose and look like losers. We must stand on our feet, though, because in the fire, God is there. In the fire, he is present. Nebuchadnezzar, he sees these guys walking around with a bonus person in there. He's astonished. He's He's, he, he calls his counselors around. They're all looking in. He goes, didn't we throw three in? Why am I seeing four? And they're, walk, they're not even bound. Like they're walking around freely. Imagine you seeing this, knowing what you know about fire and seeing this. This is a supernatural event and the writer wants us to see it. And the question of this fourth, uh, the, the question of this um, section here is who's the fourth one? Who's the fourth person here? The presence of the fourth person in this fire is the one who makes the difference. Without the four, the three are, they're they're goners, right? 
The text doesn't tell us who or, or what the fourth person is, though Nebuchadnezzar seems to indicate that it's an angel that looked like a son of the gods, or some texts will say the son of God. Uh, and I just, I want to say he's likely right. Theologians down the line and scholars would agree with him, but we do want to be careful about letting a pagan king do our theology for us. So we want to look at the whole record of Scripture. We want to rely on trustworthy, reverent sources. Uh, historians and scholars believe that this was either an, the angel of the Lord who regularly throughout the Scriptures would show up and bring deliverance, or that this was something called a Christophany which means the, an appearance of Christ before he was born, the second member of the Trinity manifesting himself, coming to protect, a foreshadowing of his uh, delivering ways, his rescuing ways. Either way, though, it becomes apparent to the reader that whoever this was, they're on mission from the Most High King to honor and deliver the three from the little king. He was glorious in human eyes, but in God's eyes, he's nothing. My son Gideon loves creating fireplaces. You'll see these on the screen here in a second. So this, uh, this is like his pastime. So I know it's kind of hard to see. So the fireplace on the left, Gid, where are you? What's its name? That's Ramona. He and his buddy have named the fireplace on the left while we're camping. That's Ramona. All the way to the top, that's a chimney. And then it's hard to see, but at the chimney, they, they've like reinforced it with like mortar and mud. They made this mixture. They bound it all together. They've stoked this super hot fire. You could actually see flames coming out of the fireplace, at the chimney at the very top. And they put this spit on it and they would put bratwursts on a stick and they would roast the bratwursts and cook them for dinner on the spit on Ramona. We went up a couple, like a month later as a family, and Ramona was still standing there. The one on the right is from December 20th of this year. He's built a fort, and at the back end of his fort, he's got a fireplace with a chimney that's all the, I look out the window, it's the morning, and I see smoke coming out of this like fort that he's made. I go out there, I'm like, Gideon, what are you doing? He's inside there, like there's a piece of cardboard in his hand right there. He's just like feeding the fire. Drives me crazy because we have these big basalt rocks out there and the whole side of them is black after he builds his fireplaces up against them. It's like a homeless camp there too. It's made with pallets and all kinds of stuff. Looks familiar. Here's the point though. Like just last week, Gideon was doing this thing and he comes in and he reeks of smoke. I'm like, dude, go take a shower. Like he's, he's all up in these fireplaces and the smell of smoke is like all over him. You know, if you spend some time at a campfire and you wake yourself up, if you don't shower before you go to bed, you wake yourself up in the middle of the night just smelling the smoke, you know, the campfire smoke all over you. The writer is intentional here about telling us how completely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were protected from the raging king and his raging fire. The fire didn't have any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads wasn't even singed. Their cloaks weren't harmed. No smell of the fire had come upon them at all. They are completely protected by God. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is one of astonishment at God's power. He's acknowledged by God's, he's, he acknowledges God's power here, but he still was not ready to submit to God's power. He wasn't yet ready to live by the first commandment. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. 
Therefore, I make a decree, Nebuchadnezzar said, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue, look at this, in this way. He's astonished, he's still not convinced that Yahweh is the only God. But the king does promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The Most High God is the one who has delivered them from the king's hand. This account begins with a decree and it ends with a promotion. It's really interesting. Chapter 1 of Daniel begins with a decree and ends with a promotion. They they continue to get elevated by the king. Chapter 2 begins with a decree of destruction. It ends with another promotion. Chapter 3 begins with a decree that man-made gods have to be worshipped. It ends with a declaration that the most high God of the Hebrews must not be blasphemed. Here's the conclusion here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had incredible pressure to bow their knees to powerless gods. Incredible pressure from authority, from community. They were intimidated. But they had decided that before the pressure came, They would have no other gods beside Yahweh. They discovered that whether under the threat of death or in their actual deaths, whatever they faced, God was there. And for us, God is still there. He is as present in his world today as he was with those guys in that raging fire. He was governing history then. He governs history today. His kingdom has come in power through the life and through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus. His kingdom submits to no other human kingdoms because this eternal king, the Lord of lords, God most high, he sits on the throne and he rules. And rather than being a raging and prideful and capricious king, he's a generous and merciful and just king. He's patient. He calls every man, he calls every woman, he calls every child, he calls everyone to repent, to change our minds about who he is. As we change our minds about who he is, our way of life will begin to change. He calls us to bow our knees to his Christ, to his Messiah, to his rescuer, who will deliver anyone and everyone who trusts in him from the destruction and from the fire of hell. And all who believe and all who trust in King Jesus, he gives them a place at his table, names them children of the Most High God, and protects them and sustains them for all eternity. Throughout the Old Testament, these these promises are made, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. And Jesus, at his resurrection and ascension, he says, behold, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. No matter what it is that you and I are facing, Our God is present. Whether you can feel it or not does not change the objective truth that God is present with his people and he protects his people. And even if we die, we shall live with him forever in glorified bodies and a glorified eternity 
Our hope is sure when our hope is placed in Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for this good news. We rejoice in it. Just even that, yeah, at the end is like something is happening in the human heart. Would you stir and would you continue to move us to hope in Christ, to, to, to continue to just push all of our resources and our attention and our allegiances into the kingdom that will have no end. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son who is forever praised, amen. We thank you and we ask for more. Would you use us to call people in, please? In Jesus' name, amen.